the Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn here on Westwood One. Joining me on this episode, I have from Rob Zombie's band, guitarist John Five. The new album is Invasion. In fact, it'll be coming out later this summer, but he's been setting out videos one at a time to get fans prepared. And then on the other side, it is drummer Chuck Berge. He has played the last, I think, 14 years with Billy Joel, but uh, he also was the drummer who was on the very very first Bon Jovi album. He tells us that story about how he, Aldenova, and you, McDonald, help John Bon Jovi put his album together. But first and foremost, it is the one, the only, Sir Alan Niven. Bonjour, Monsieur Niven. Good morning to you, too. <laughs> uh, from a uh, hey, wait, a it's, white... it's mid afternoon. Well, it's a white wonderland here in uh, Arizona this morning. Yeah, I saw that the. Uh... Southwest, including Las Vegas or places in Las, I think Henderson, Vegas, got a dusting of snow. Is that is that true? Uh, three or four inches, and they're promising us uh, a heavier hit in about two or three days. Well, good. It uh, happened. Good. It happened. It, we need the water. Well, yeah, we yeah you need we all need a little bit of water. But um, before we get to to talking of John Five, and before we get to talking uh, with Chuck. Um, one of these things that has been taken up the news these days is pledge music and it falling apart and essentially um, taking money from the bands. And, and have you been keeping up on the pledge music thing? Uh, not to, not to a, a great detail, uh, but in general, I know that, um, for example, Buck and Evans, who are based in Wales in the United Kingdom, um, have been left high and dry, um, and they recorded, m- made a made a really nifty little record, and now they're not uh, seeing the money come through, um, which is which is tough. Um, it's really unfortunate to hear because you know with so few labels out there. I mean, back in the day, you could get twenty rejection letters from one city. Um, but with so so few avenues to reach the major audience, the failure of pledge music is is a real hit, and it's a real shame. And you know, I wonder if it was just mismanagement or greed, or if the conspiracy side of my brain could go darker forces are at work. Yeah, you know, I used pledge music back in 2013 when. Um we did the a world with hero kiss tribute and at the time it was absolutely wonderful you know they the money that was raised was immediately dispersed uh, uh we had a chance to pay for all the cd and the manufacturing and and the postage and all that and then had a chance to donate 35,000 US dollars to the palliative care home and there wasn't a glitch i mean we ran the project i think till june expected to have it out by August and as soon as the pledge ended at the end of June or middle of June they sent a check and it, and it was great now you look at somebody like a, or, or a band like Queensryche they took to the internet and they said oh my god 
uh, we're $70,000 out in the hole and you need to phone your credit card companies right away and demand a refund. How dare Pledge Music and um, a writer, and, and, and I don't have his name, but uh, I, I, should, I should probably credit him, but I, I don't have his name in front of me. He wrote an article and said, listen, if you chose Pledge Music as your money taker, your fulfillment agent, you bear the responsibility just because your sort of, you know, PayPal account guy didn't work out. You still owe those fans the signed T-shirts or the signed CDs and the what's your take on that? Where, where does the responsibility lie? I mean, I know with Buck and Evans and, and some of the, you know, smaller bands, it's a kick in the nuts. But a more organized, more corporate kind of band, if, if you've made a promise, do you, do you still have to fulfill it? I mean, do, who bears the responsibility? Well, I, I, it doesn't matter what you're doing and what walk of life you're in. If you make a pledge, um, and from the band point of view, you've said, we will deliver a record or we will deliver a T-shirt uh, if you guys fund us. Um, and unfortunately, and as tough as it is and as disastrous as it is, that's an action that you've initiated. And since you've initiated the action and you've put that pledge thing in place, unfortunately, I would think, and I'm no legal expert, but I would think the responsibility will end up on your doorstep. But from a moral point of view and an ethical point of view, um, I think that's something that those who employ pledged music need to think about carefully. Yeah, I do too. And the article had gone on to say that most of those bands aren't attracting new fans. It's not like there's a new fan that glows to pledge music and, and you know, peruses the menu and says, oh, look at this band. I've never heard of them. Let me pledge music. What he was pointing out in the article was that most bands use their existing fan base, use their social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and said, go to pledge music, go to this site, go buy that. And he said, you know what? Instead of going through pledge music and now throwing up your arms and saying, well, it ain't our fault that you're not getting your CD. He says, well, why not just go to your website, you know, whatever, you know, Mitch.com and send your fans there and do it all, raise the money and, and do it all in-house. And I actually think that's sort of a valid point because I really think, especially some of those older bands. Um, well, here's, here's, yeah. here's, where it's a little, here's where it's a little difficult. And yes, Mitch, you're absolutely on point and you're absolutely right. It's those who know the band either over the long term or have re recently discovered them and gone, oh my God, I really want an album from this band. I'm prepared to pay up front, which is essentially what it's doing. Um, you're, you're dead right on that. Um, but don't, don't miss what the role of Pledge Music was supposed to be. Um, it was supposed to be something solid and trustworthy. And where one might think, yeah, I'm not going to go and sell, sell my uh, Range Rover out there and send the money off to this band because once they get the money, they might decide they're going to New Orleans for the weekend. But if I send it to Pledge Music, then they were supposed to act as something as a, a middleman guarantee that somebody was holding the money. It was kind of a kind of weird kind of escrow role 
You know, back in the day, um, you know, there was a famous story about the missing millions of GNR. No, they weren't missing. They were being held in an escrow account, waiting for the band to put up X number of shows or for X amount of merchandise to be sold before it was released by the bank holding the escrow account. And in many ways, my perception, and my perception may be wrong, but my perception of Pledge Music was it's a glorified escrow. Yeah, I, I I won't uh, dispute that, and and you're right. You know, when you look, you're right on point when you say that because when you look at the established bands, and I'm just using Queens right because uh, they they wrote the letter, but. I think as a fan, you can say, oh, I'm going to send this money via Queensryche.com and I can trust them and so on and so forth. But when you look at a band like Buck and Evans, you may not know who they are. And if you go to Pledge Music, you go, ah, that there's sort of an escrow, sort of a, a guarantee or a guarantor that, you know, this band is not going to take this money and bugger off. Whereas if you went to, you know, Mitch.com, you go, well, who the hell is this Mitch guy? And I'm not really sure. And so for newer bands, it acted like a like a lock guarantee that you were going to get something. For more established bands, they could they, they, they could do that on their own name. It's it, you know it was sort of damned if you do damn. But I, I do want to get over to Bernie Torme. First of all, the former or one-time Ozzy Osbourne guitarist is currently in the hospital and very very sick. So I do send him my best, but. Um, he did a pledge music thing, and he wrote on his Facebook that he was out sixteen thousand pounds, which I believe is around like thirty-two thousand Canadian dollars. Well, and, it's about it's, it's about twenty twenty thousand dollars U.S. Yeah, and and he has pledged uh, not to, to to be ironic or whatever. He has pledged to fulfill everything out of pocket. And take full ownership and responsibility. These items were promised and so on and so forth. And uh, he has started doing that or, or it's been already done. And in fact, uh, some fans responded by setting up sort of the equivalent of a GoFundMe page to sort of help him uh, mitigate the uh, the damages that he has been uh, visited upon by this pledge collapse. But uh, I think... Personally, I think more artists deserve to go the Bernie Torme route instead of saying, well, it's not our fault. Too bad for you. Go go ask your credit card for that. Just say, listen, this is going to hurt and this is going to suck, but we promised you and we're going to. And uh, by the way, last in line, the band with uh, Vinny Apice, uh, Vivian Campbell, etc. Uh, same thing. Uh, they have set up a website where the signed CD covers that had been promised – if you can sort of, you know, prove that you paid, or they are going to, on their own dime, send you that stuff. So, so I think bands need to be very careful with the public relations on this. If you're just going to throw your hands up and say, "Well, too bad," that is not very smart um, in the long run. So, Bernie Torme, Last in Line, other bands like that. Kudos to you for for stepping up and doing the best in a horrible, horrible situation. Right? I mean. What are you going to do, right, Alan? Well, you're going to do your best. And, you know, with some people, it's it's really going to hurt and be a bite. And with others, it's not that big a deal. Um, but, you know, yep. it's about your ethics and your morality. So there you go. It, it really is. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll finish with this, just saying, in my, in my case, since the money wasn't going uh, for... Uh, well, it wasn't going in my pocket. It was going to a charity. That would have really been a bummer. 
I mean, that really would have been uh, – I mean, it wouldn't have been financially disastrous because it's not like I was waiting for it to, to pay for anything. But the fact that I wouldn't have been able to give it um, – to the charity would just have been um, what, what would a moral defeat, a psychological defeat. It would have, it just would have been bad. Anyway, uh, let us get on to our first guest from Rob Zombie is guitarist John Five. The new album Invasion is coming out later this year, and what he's done February first, March first, April first, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, on the first of every month, he releases a video from one of the songs on the album and uh it's an interesting marketing concept uh and actually I'll, I'll just before we get to john i'll just ask you what do you think of that concept of sort of pre-releasing a video on a given set date monthly and then uh, you know the, the 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 crescendo of the whole thing is aha now the album uh it's in this day and age, I think it makes total sense. Um, I mean, you know, Buck and Evans are doing that. And when people ask me, you know, what do I know? I'm just an old fogey from way back when. Um, but when they ask me, how do you market these days? I try and remind people that as much as I, I believe that uh, people are very capable of concentrating, people binge watch, for example, um, there is something to be said about repeated short exposure. And, you know, for example, with Chris Buck, we had him play, um, you know, put up little 30-second snippets of him playing solos and keep putting them out so that you could just look at it for a moment and go, wow, he is good, and then look at it again. Um, I thought it was interesting. I watched uh, uh, the setup for the last Indigo Girls record, and they repeatedly put out little snippets of writing, pre-production, recording, and then the album came, and my God, you know, where my my partner was really into it and looking at it, as soon as the album came out, it was like, next, you know? what? So I think there's a lesson to be learned there. I think what you do is you keep your interest, you keep your following's interest by putting up fresh things all the time, even to the point of, hey, Maybe not even do an album, just do a series of singles. Yeah, well, and and I, I believe that's sort of the spirit of how John Five is working. is sort of a, a series of songs that he releases, and then the culmination it's, is this is this album. And uh, real quick, since it's we kind of it's kind of Beatlesque. esque. That's how yeah. it used to work way back in the day. And just think for a moment, what's in the language? Um, we called it an album because it was a collection of singles. Uh, and, uh, like so, a collection of photographs. Let, let me uh, let me let me do this for you. Uh, let's let's plug Buck and Evans. The uh, their website is buckandevans.com, and that, uh, in case you need it, is b u c k a n d e v a n s dot com. Buckandevans.com. They were on the A World with Heroes Kiss tribute CD that was part of the Pledge Music campaign back in the day. Uh, and of course, John Five is a huge, huge Kiss fan. So once again, we have wrapped a nice Kiss bow around this uh, introduction. And uh, yeah, see, I'm good at this. And without further ado, here is the one, the only guitarist extraordinaire, John Five. We are speaking with guitarist John Five. The new album coming out later this year is called Invasion. He will be, of course, on tour through February, well, not through February, but end of February, March, and beyond. Uh, John, always, 
always a pleasure. How are you? I am well, and how are you? Good. Good. I am uh, good. surviving good. surviving the cold of, uh, of Montreal, as, as always, but, uh, you know. Oh, man. When does it start to warm up? Um, usually around mid-March, you know, mid-March should, should, we should start getting into the, the 40 degrees is and the 50 degrees is, or, or as we say up here, you know, 10 kind of thing. But, uh, <laughs> you know, a- April, May is, is, is a bit better. You know, we can start, uh, putting away the snow shovels and stuff like that, but Hey, what are you going to do? But, um, good, good. let, let's talk, uh, invasion. Of course, the album is slated for a summer release. Uh, you are putting out videos, sort of one every uh, every month. In fact, well, let, let me start there. Um, talk to me about this concept of putting out a video, sort of like the first of every month, and just mi- you're doing the entire album in video, in, in a sense, right? Well, it's it's such an interesting thing, and I take it from you know I'm always looking, I'm always uh, observing and learning and things like that. And my son, who's 15. He, you know, he doesn't, he's never bought a CD in his whole life. I think, you know, uh, but he just watches music like on YouTube. That's all he does. You know, he doesn't really, and he streams and stuff, but it's mostly YouTube. And I'm like, Hmm, that's so interesting. And, and, uh, all of his friends do too. And I'm like, well, instead of working so hard on a record, like, eight, nine months, these, these bands just kill themselves. Uh, you know, I'm thinking, well, what if I put out a video every month and then, Hey, perfect. I'll, uh, the, the album will stay alive, um, for quite a while because you get a new song every month and, you know, you can buy it off iTunes. And then, you know, after like seven or eight videos, I'll put out the physical and, uh, it's worked very, very well because so many bands put out their albums and they have so much great music on it, but you would never know because you would just listen to the single or what's on YouTube. And that's the reality. It really is. Is this, is this also sort of a new business model in sense of monetizing the music? Because we know that when you go to YouTube and you get a, an AdSense account and you get it monetized and people click on it, there's, there's a revenue stream that's created. Metallica on self um, self wire to hard uh, hardwire to self destruct. They did the video thing too. Is this part mm-hmm. of sort of also the business plan that hey, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to do these things. I'm going to have people watching it, but at the end of the day, there's also a financial motivation to it. Well, I think the financial motivation is well. You're not making a lot of money from YouTube or anything like that. I know I'm not. I'm just trying to keep the album alive. You know, I can't speak for Metallica, obviously, but, you know, even if they're getting so many views, or you don't really make that much money. And, you know, uh, but what is very, very expensive is making all those videos. That's what's so expensive. So um, I think it's just a, a new way to promote. I think that's what it is. I think it's just a great way to promote because you can reach the world in 10 seconds. Yeah, you really can. So, so then talk to me about the concept of putting out an album. Is that concept, have we sort of, is that yesterday's news in a sense that a collection of 10 songs or 12 songs really isn't relevant or is it, this is, this is just a sort of a different way to present it. So what is sort of your, your take on the future of 
an album? I think it is relevant still, but we're just trying to figure out other ways to promote it. Um, I think it's, I think it's very important to have an album because not only just the physical, but the period, the actual physical tour of the album, let's say the, uh, you know, if, if Metallica, we, we use them as an example, that they have a certain album and they call it that tour, you know, just for a time reference too. But I think the album is very, very relevant and we're just looking for different ways to promote it. But I'll, I'll be honest with you. I would never, 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 never go back to how it was with a record company. I, cause I've been offered record deals, you know, all the time, all the time, a few times, like once a month probably, but I always turn them down because how it's being done now is the best. You know, it really is the best. I can reach a bunch of people, but before when there was a record label, it was so impossible. You had to go through so much red tape. You had to go through this guy and that guy and that guy's out of town. This guy's on vacation and this guy, you know, is not getting back to you. It was a nightmare. Now just doing everything yourself. It's great. I agree. And I, and I will, and I'm going to agree also from the sort of the rock journalist perspective, because in the past, if you wanted to get an interview, for example, you had to talk to the publicist. And if, if you were in Canada, now you had to talk to the Canadian publicist, but the band that didn't necessarily have a Canadian publicist yet. So you had to wait your turn. And so, and now it's just so much easier to reach out to somebody like you and say, Hey, do you want to do an interview or reach out to, and it's, it just, everything goes smoother. It's, it's just quicker. And yeah. And nine out of 10 times, if not 10 out of 10 times, the artist would say, I would love to. Yes. You know, I'd love to do a, I'd love to do an interview with you. Yeah, and then of course the publicist. Anyway, but it it is more direct. So, uh, in terms of promotion, you're also you're also doing the tour. Talk to me a little bit about the tour. Do do you present sort of the Invasion album in full on the tour? Is it snippets? Is it sort of a greatest hits? What can fans expect? Because you are coming up to uh, Montreal in March, which is the show I'll be at. And you'll also be at the, uh, uh, what do you call it, the Brass Monkey in Ottawa. And, of course, you'll be all over the place, uh, too. But um, what is sort of the, 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 what can we expect? What it is, what it is, is, you know, I am a fan and I listen to the crowd. The crowd wants to hear songs that they're familiar with. So I'm going to do the songs that I've released already. Um, I'm doing a, a, a bluegrass number that's going to be on invasion that I'm not going to put the video out for, but yes, everything that you'll hear at the show, if you are a fan, you'll know the song. So, which is, I think really cool and, and important for the fans, but I'm going to be honest with you. I was terrified to go on tour because, you know, let's be honest. It's a hard sell. It's instrumental music. So I did everything in my power to make it like super entertaining. And that's what this show is. It's there's so much that goes on. And, you know, my main thing is not to bore anybody. So if you're seeing one thing over and over it, that's not how it's going to be at our show. You know, there's going to be so many things that are going to be happening. It will keep the individual, even they don't know who I am. It will keep them entertained. Like, Oh, wow, that's cool. That's cool. That's cool. You know? 
So um, I really, it's so important for me to put on the best show possible. And um, I'm super excited to come to Canada because I love Canada. I mean, we go there, I've been going there my whole life with everyone, and uh, but the first time with the uh, creatures. It, it's going to be spectacular. So, all right, let me, let me go into some of the other stuff here. Uh, recently, and by that I mean in January, you had a chance to perform on stage with Ace Fraley, not the first time. Um, talk to me a little bit about that experience because you have in, in other interviews talked about how you learned a lot from playing with David Lee Roth and, and he was inspirational and all this, but talk to me about Ace Fraley in, the, in sort of that same capacity. Have you, what did you learn from him over the years? Is he still inspirational to you? And just what's it like? Cause I, I know you've been on stage with all kinds of people, but there's still mm-hmm. something about being on stage with the childhood hero, right? Of course. It's like being on stage with Superman. You know, right. it's like, it's unbelievable. It's, it's, it's so great. It's so amazing. Um, every time. And he's my buddy, you know, he's my, he's my friend and we are, um, you know, super close. I went to the show. I went to the show with Nikki six and we're like hanging out. And he's like, okay, well, the tour manager's like, Hey, you know, you got five minutes. He goes, okay, cool. So Nikki was like, Oh, where should we stand? And we're just, and he goes, Hey, you want to play cold gin? And I was like, sure. And, you know, Nikki's like, Oh my God, are you going to go play? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. And he, you know, cause the guitar I was using like came down to my ankles and you know, all that stuff. And, uh, <laughs> But I just love it. You know, I love getting up on stage with him. And he is a huge inspiration still to this day. You know, it's, uh, he's, you know, he's my hero. Absolutely. He's my hero. Talk to me about, uh, in terms of a guitar player, because a lot has been made uh, of Ace being, you know, sloppy and this and that, but, but not sloppy in a negative sense, just sloppy in the sense that he has his own sort of grit and his own style. When you look at, a player like Ace Fraley from the day. Uh, what are some of the, the musical lessons you can take away from him? Ace has such a gift. Um, he can write a song and out of nowhere, just write this amazing song. And he's got his own style that has changed the world and that has influenced millions of people. You know, it's, it's changed their lives. He's got that, awesome guitar style and uh it's unique and you know it's ace and it's just so good like when i went to go see him just i've seen him a thousand times but when i saw him in uh january he sounded great and he was singing great so um i'm you know i'm very happy for him i'm proud of him and you know he also looks great you know and so it's uh he's killing it right now he really is. Uh, let me bring you back to the Invasion album. Since we are doing these one songs at a time, and you did mention that it was like a promotional tool, does it change the way you approach making the songs? Do you, do you just sort of think of one song at a time and say, okay, I'm going to do this song this month and that'll be the video? The, the putting together the album, do you, did you come up with the 12 songs at once as a cohesive unit or do you really look at it as piecemeal, one song at a time, and eventually it'll become a whole. It's basically what I love. You know, I'll have like, oh, cool. I really like this or I like that. That's a really cool idea. 
and I'll have an amalgamation of just all these different styles and um, cool songs that entertain myself and hopefully keep the crowd entertained. I mean, I'm doing a song with just mandolin and, um, <clears throat> and then like total bluegrass song and a heavy, heavy, heavy speed metal type song and like an EDM type tune. And it's just so many different things going on, but it's still a guitar record and it's crazy. And it's, uh, it's a lot of fun and I don't plan it. I just do song by song and it's very difficult. It is super difficult, but it's really a lot of fun. It's like, it's man, it's especially playing it live. It's, it's, um, it's challenging. We rehearse all the time and we try to get perfection. Me and the drummer and the bass player, we, we all try to reach perfection every show. And it's a little game we play. So, um, you know, we're really having a good time with it. So so let me quickly get back to the live show. Uh, a lot of the debate that you hear these days in the media uh, centers around band using uh, backing tracks or, or other kind of tracks. When we go see John Five, first of all, is it an entirely live show or is there some enhancement? And and is there a place in music for enhancement? Should, should a show be fully live or is a little bit of enhancement just part of the presentation? Well, I guess that depends on the band or the individual. I We have segues going through. So because I'm like changing a costume or I'm switching guitars or I'm putting a mask on. So we'll have segues. Uh, musical interludes, you know, while I'm changing or doing something like that. So that's obviously uh, pre-recorded. And sometimes I'll have some harmonies. I really like when there's certain harmonies in there, but that's basically it. Trust me, if we ever, <laughs> when we mess up, you'll know, because it's a train wreck. It's like, I don't know if you've ever seen one of those 10-speed bike uh, races when one guy falls over and the whole group of people fall over too. That's how it is. So, um, you know, there's there's uh, little bits of segues and harmonies and things like that, but that's basically it. Well, and so what's your take, though, on... on is the is the public, because the internet will, will hang on to something and then it'll create it, is it a regular practice, though, in sort of an arena act to use backing tapes and to, to enhance a show? And is that something that you believe in? And is that something that you recommend? Or, or would you prefer to have, like, the old days where Ozzy just had somebody offstage? Uh, you know, what what's sort of your take on this whole, what is becoming a bit well, of a controversy? Well, to be honest, I mean, if... To hire, like, if you, if let's say you're Aussie and you hire, you can, you have the funds to hire a keyboard player offstage to play the keyboard parts, to play Mr. Crowley, to play things like that. Um, but a lot of bands don't have those, that funds because you have to obviously pay that uh, other member. You have to get him a hotel. You have to get him per diem. You have to get him you know, everything. And it's super, super, super expensive to do that. Um, 
for like, you know, some keyboard parts, or you could just put the keyboard parts on tracks for certain songs you do. So I don't, I really, to be honest, I really don't see that much wrong with it because let's say there's a band that's using tracks for keyboards or a couple chunky guitars. I don't, I really don't see the big deal of that. Um, because when that guitar goes out or that bass goes out or that vocal goes out, you know it because there's nothing going on. But, um, I don't see anything wrong with like, you know, if there's a keyboard part that, that is super important or you have strings, like a string section, you're obviously not going to travel with the string quartet, uh, on the road. You know, you'd have to be a, a billionaire to do that. Um, so I don't see anything wrong with uh, like things like that. Yeah, and you know what? I'm I'm going to add this to the argument because I, I don't see issues with enhancements, quite frankly. And I call them enhancements. I don't call it cheating. Uh, but but I'm also going to suggest that when you're paying $150 for a ticket or $200 or whatever it is, you don't want to show up and see a train wreck. You just want to go have a nice evening. And, and the internet is unforgiving when you go see a band and you've paid $150 and it was a train wreck, then the whole internet is, it was awful. And so there's a lot of money at play of people. And so I think it has its place. Um, though I think you need to sort of be honest about it as well and say, listen, we're giving you a show and that includes some enhancement. But anyway, um, you have played, of course, with a lot of different people, a lot of different vocalists. Um, in terms of, and, and I'm, I'm not going to say favorites because that's that's not a fair word, but when you're working with a David Lee Roth or a Sebastian Bach or a Rob Zombie, uh, what are some of your favorite sort of vocalist moments and, and working with them? What, what have they, they brought to the game? And, and <laughs> boy, I'm having a hard time finding a different word, but okay. Who's sort of one of the favorite voices you have worked with and why? And, and I know favorite is very unfair because the other ones are equally as talented. But um, who's your the guy that you really think, man, my, my guitar and that voice, it's, it's just magical. You know, there is I have such a respect for amazing, amazing singers because of the fact I have tonally the worst voice. Like the tone of my voice, like even talking is horrible. But when you meet a singer like a Rob Zombie or a Sebastian Bach or a Steve Perry or a Rod Stewart, anything like that, they have a tone to their voice, even talking. And that's something you can't learn. You can't uh, teach or anything. It's just natural. And that is what is so magical to me. Like when you hear Dave talk, you know, that's Dave. When I talk to him on the phone, you know, it sounds like he's singing almost or the same thing with Steve Perry. He sounds like if he just put a little melody to his voice on the phone, Hey John, you want to go to breakfast? You're like, Oh my God. You know, cause it's, that's how good their voices are just because of that tone. So um, I have such a high, high respect for these singers. And uh, because it's, it's amazing to me because tonally my voice is the worst ever. 
Yeah. Well, I don't mean yeah, but but you know what I mean. <laughs> no, yeah. But agree. but is there is there a guy particularly where where you really think that you've locked in that that you're just a great pair together? I think. Well, me and Zombie, of course. Yeah. Me and Dave. You know, me and Dave. Me and Rob. Uh, we just know what each other's. You know, it's just a weird magic thing. We'll just really lock in and. Uh, you know, I just love playing with 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 those guys. These guys, yeah, know? they're great guys. Yeah. And, and uh, I'll I'll uh, I'll wrap it up here because uh, I'm looking at this time and I'm thinking, oh God, thank you. Uh, but uh, Sunshine's Gray on the new Steve Perry record. Uh, talk to me about how you were approached to be part of the record because here's a guy who hadn't done anything in you know X Y Z amount of years. Big comeback record, traces, and he gets you. You're there. You're part of it. Um, yeah. What was that like when they first came to you? Because obviously they came to you probably a year or two before the album even appeared. And they said, we want to write oh, with you. Oh, longer than we, that. Yeah, exactly. So so what was that like? And, and did the whole process of that first phone call or the first text or email to, I'm playing on a Steve Perry record, mother, you know? Um, yeah. That's... Well, how it came about, like my agent, John Dittmar, he was friends or is friends with Steve Perry and he was writing for people. And this was years ago, years ago. And I'm like, and he's like, oh, you should write a song with Steve Perry. And he uh, brought me up and, and things like that. And so I went over to his house. We wrote a ton of music. We totally hit it off. Had a blast loved each other. We're just like having so much fun. You know, a lot of the times not even talking about music, just hanging out and just whatever. And he's the greatest guy. And I would sit like, you know, a foot away from him. We'd be recording music and he'd be singing. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you, it, it's like one of those things. It was like listening to the radio. This guy's voice is the same. It's crazy. It's crazy. I was right next to him. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to remember this because his voice sounded exactly how it always has, like how I've listened to it my whole life. M- must have been so incredibly it, magical. It was. It was magical. And, uh, you know, I text him all the time and we're buddies and he's, you know, the coolest dude ever. You know, he's really. Uh, we have lots of like fun things that we've done together. One thing that I did, I was like, Hey Steve. Oh my God, this was terrible. Hey Steve, come. And this was like a hundred years ago. Like I've known him for a while. I was like, come to long beach. We're playing a concert. It's, it was Halloween it was zombie and anthrax, you know, and it was this crazy show and long beach arena. I think it was, he was like, okay, cool. I'll come. And I think Gene Simmons was there and it was like, a, a who's who. And here comes Steve Perry. And he's like, Hey, and you know, people are like freaking out, you know, and stuff like that. We're playing. And he did not, I don't think he had a good time. He didn't tell me, but I don't think he had a good time. Cause it was so crazy. It was like, wow, you know, the music and everybody was screaming and moshing. He was like, what is going on here? You know? So, um, but, you know, I think that was the only uh, thing he had to endure. But, uh, but 
you know, he's just such a, a great guy, but he never said, Oh, you know, uh, but he was like, Oh, it was great. And it was fun and stuff. He's such a nice person. You know, he is such a great sport. I can imagine. I, I haven't interviewed him since 2004. So it would be nice to, to get another shot at him, but you know, do, do you think, uh, do you think that you'll do more with him or do you think that this was sort of the last hurrah from, from Steve? You, Oh no, I think he had a blast. I think, you know, it's, it's of course up to him and, you know, I'll always be there if he wants to do some, uh, some ticking and, and singing, you know, I'll, I'll, why not? I'll drive, drive right up there. Well, good. Well, and, and, and tell uh, both Dave and Steve to, to give me a call. <laughs> I'd love to interview them both, yeah, but, absolutely. but yeah. uh, John, it, it has been a, a great pleasure and always is a great Thank pleasure. You. And I will see you in uh, Montreal and then I might even come up to the Ottawa show. It's, it's only about two hours away. I mean, why not? Right. Uh, good time. It's a lot of fun. It definitely is a lot of fun. And uh, there you go. Thank you. And uh, thank yeah. you, my friend. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. And a very big thank you to John Five. Do check out the new album, Invasion. It should be in stores, I believe, sometime in July. But hey, just keep checking back. It's always good to check in on John Five. And now, Sir Alan, we will move over to Chuck Berge, who has been with Billy Joel for, well, as long as I can remember. And luckily, I'm old, so I don't remember that far back. But no, he's been uh, 14, I, I 15 believe, years. Yeah, I, I, I could be wrong because I quite often am. I believe he's been on on the stool since about 2004, I think. Yeah, something like that. So it's been, but he's been, listen, he's, he, he played on Billy Joel's uh, 12,000, uh, 12,000, haha, 12 Gardens Live album and a whole bunch of other stuff that, that goes back to 2007, 2005. And so, but you might doesn't, not be. Doesn't yeah. Billy Joel play Madison Square Garden every other weekend and has done since about 2000? Yes, I mean, he you know, I, plays about I once a month. That, yeah, that Billy Joel is always Madison Square Garden to the point they've got a, you know, a, a dedicated hammock for him down in the green room. Well, it, it's sort of an asymmetrical residency. You know, when you talk about a residency in Vegas, it's two weeks of every night, but. This one is pretty much once a month, and in fact, on July 11th of this year, 2019, I will be at Madison Square Garden to see Billy Joel. So I'm very much excited, but uh, for folks who don't know Chuck too well, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to him, well, two reasons I wanted to talk to him, A, he's in a band with um, Steve Brown called Tokyo Motor Fist, B, he was the drummer of record or maybe not record a ghosty drummer on bon jovi's first album so when you think of uh she don't know me and and uh shot through the heart and all those early early songs from the very first album well guess what chuck played on those along with alda nova and uh, ue mcdonald but uh i'm gonna throw some names at you alan and, and see if you well, know I, I, yeah. I, I was i was about to say you know uh, from what I understand about Chuck is that um, he's a drummer who has not, not just got a, a sense of excellence about him, but what I find really interesting is that he has uh, the ability to play different fields, play different genres. He's uh, ob- obviously a very, very skilled 
music. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm I'm going to just throw out a resume just because there's Kiss connections to it. First of all, he was in a band called Balance with Bob Kulick. Later on, he was in Meatloaf with uh, Bruce Kulick, Bob Kulick, and Alan Merrill, who is famous for having written I Love Rock and Roll and singing it with the Arrows a good decade before Joan Jett ever got near the song, and I like to point that out. But here, here listen to this. He's appeared on albums by Hollow Notes, Jolyn Turner, Rainbow, Blue Oyster Cult, Al Miola, Diana Ross, Enrique Iglesias, and then Billy Joe. I mean, can you imagine? First of all, the different styles to be on an Al Miola album compared to a Hollow Notes album, for example, or Rainbow compared to Enrique. I mean, you've got to have some chops, right? I mean, th- this is not a slouch in any way, shape, or form. Well, what I'd suggest is this, and there's a... Uh, a, a drummer resident here in Arizona that I like like to use when I'm doing something um, because I call him um, a song drummer. He's very, very aware of the content and the feel and the atm- atmosphere of the song, and he adjusts his feel and his approach to fit the atmos and the content of the song. And when you find a drummer like that, keep him because... They're rare beasts, and to have somebody who can conform their style to a particular approach to a song is golden. It's magic, and uh, obviously Chuck is one of those rare beasts. Yeah, absolutely, and, and, and I forgot to mention also, he was in a Broadway play called Moving Out, so he's also a Broadway drummer. I mean, just unbelievable. So anyway, uh, head over to Chuck Berge, that's C-H- U-C-K-B-U-R-G-I.com for more, ChuckBurgie.com. And we do get the conversation started with Rainbow. We move right into the Bon Jovi stuff. And then, yes, we get on to talking about Billy Joel. So without further ado, here is the one, the only, drummer extraordinaire, Chuck Burgie. We are speaking with Grammy-nominated drummer currently playing with Billy Joel, the one, the only, Chuck Bergy. Bergy. Close. It is Bergy. See, you, you got it right the first time. I know. And then uh, I corrected Mitch, myself. Mitch, it's, <laughs> it's great to hear your voice yeah. and to hopefully uh, finish uh, a long-awaited interview with you. Yeah. Yeah, we, we have tried to connect. Uh, we, we had scheduling conflicts. Then we had technology conflicts. and uh, But here we are. So I'm going to start with probably what I'm going to assume and you tell me if I should assume right, was probably one of the, the, the greater moments or the nicer moments was this 26th annual Grammy Award in 1983 for the single or for the best rock instrumental performance for the single Anybody There. Nomination didn't take away the trophy, but still the recognition. Uh, talk to me about that up front. What well, was that like? Uh, yeah, that. OK, so <laughs> the best part about that, I'm actually joking, was that I didn't play on that track. Uh, and and uh, anybody out there was actually uh, a, a piece of music lifted from something I found years later because Richie would never really tell me where he found the melody and the uh, the, the, the music. Um, it was written by an Englishman for a um, let's see it was an animated um, ca- kind of cartoonish uh, thing called the Snowman and. Um, I I saw it on on PBS like probably 
15 years after we got that Grammy nomination for that. And it was one of those uh, things where Richie came to David and wanted to do it that night. I guess me and uh, me and Roger and Joey were probably out in some club recording that record and having a night off. And Richie decided to do it with David and the engineer. And uh, it's pretty much just the three of them uh, in the studio that night. As far as I know, there might have been other things added, but by the time I heard it, it was done. And um, Dave just said I called up some, you know, some rhythm pulses on his uh, synthesizers, and that's and Richie wanted something very sparse. Uh, and it's turned out to be one of my favorite pieces of music. Um, but yeah, that Grammy nomination was uh, really came from out of nowhere, and uh, <laughs> it was I, I've still got it somewhere. Uh, we didn't win, but um, it was neat to be considered. And uh, again, <laughs> the recording of that record was uh, was really unique for me because they had already been there in Copenhagen for about two weeks trying to get a even a take. Um, and it's a it's a long funny story. But I had I had actually auditioned for Rainbow. Um, Richie was n- nonplussed or non-committal to me. But as soon as we finished playing, Roger came running up to me and was like, Hey, I'm going to do a solo record. You want to start playing on it? And, uh, so that was the first thing I actually started doing was playing on Roger's solo record. Um, and, uh, and then they called me weeks later. Uh, they called me a couple of days later to say, Richie's decided to go with some other drummer, uh, some unknown from Long Island. And I was like, that's fine. And uh, Roger and I started recording and then uh, we must have gotten a couple of tracks deep. And then I got a call to uh, help bail them out uh, in Copenhagen and finish uh, Bent Out of Shape. So. Yeah, and Bend Out of Shape's a great record. So so let's let the folks know. I mean, we, we've got a ton of of albums. I mean, there's there's. Um, uh, what do we call it? Uh, Hall and Oates. There's there's uh, Joe Lynn Turner. Uh, who else? Mm-hmm. Rainbow, Glenn Burtnick. Uh, boy, yeah. so many. But let, a Blue Oyster Cult. But I'm going to start with one of my favorite bands. And uh, I just I recently interviewed Aldenova, and we spoke about this first album. And it not no, it's not an Aldenova album, but of course the first first Bon Jovi album. Now the first. Bon Jovi album, of course, has Runaway and has all, you know, She Don't Know Me, Shot Through the Heart, all these great things. And you got to play drums on it because the the band really was, was, well, it was John Bon Jovi, it was Alda Nova, it was Yui McDonald on bass. And how many, how many tracks did you play? Because it it wasn't a band. It was John and, and... Yeah, I don't want to sound a, disparaging. It was like it was like a pickup band, no, you know. <laughs> no, it, well, it was, and um, I had been with another band. Uh, I had been with a group that was recording at the Power Station um, called Balance, yeah, and with, we were with on Bob Kulick. Yeah, with Bob Kulick, right? Bob and uh, but but so so I did a lot of work. I ended up doing other albums uh, at the Power Station, and uh, Tony Bon Jovi was one of the co-owners. Um, and so he was, uh, he was John's, uh, I guess, cousin or uncle, I guess cousin, but, um, Johnny was the night, night manager, uh, night manager slash, um, janitor. I mean, I, I don't mean it sound disparaging, but he was like the cleanup guy. He would, uh, he would, he would empty the waste baskets and just make sure that, uh, the whole 
place was up and running for an early morning session. And uh, I started getting to know him long before um, I got a call to play on that record. And it, it, it was through uh, the producer, Lance Quinn, who um, did the tracks I did. And I don't even remember their names. I think I played on five songs. And it was through, I worked on another album uh, of, a, of a kind of put together project at the time called Archangel. And uh, Lance produced that. And I don't even have a copy of that. You know, it's just one of those things. But it was through working with Lance that he eventually uh, got got the job to finish the rest of that first Bon Jovi record. And and I think that first uh, Runaway was their first single. single. And that, yep. that, again, that wasn't really a band. That was a bunch of guys thrown together. And, um, and I guess uh, Tico had started doing some stuff in the studio. I really don't remember. Uh, but I remember Johnny really just being the coolest guy. And I just, he was such a good looking cat. It was just, if you can sing it all, you're going to be a star. And of course, uh, you know, he was, but um, I got a chance to do that, you know, just through having worked with uh, Lance Quinn. So just talk to me about that in in terms of the scene back there, because you had done Brand X, you had done Balance with, with Bob Kulik. There was a, there was a single that there was a successful single, um, but a lot of bands uh, or a lot of players, you know, used to hang around New York uh, and uh, like Alan Schwartzberg, another drummer that I know, you know, mm-hmm. hang around and they'd get hired and, and you'd do these sessions and there was a lot of ghost work. What Was that something that was part of your upbringing? Were you a a ghost on a lot of projects or was this a sort of a special favor? Was this sort of a one off? Uh, you, you know, what what was sort uh, of. A, yeah. That's a good question. Well, when I started getting uh, getting into, you know, the New York scene, um, I realized that there was a serious hierarchy of people that were already there doing all the recording. Um, Steve Gadd, um, the Marauder Brothers, Rick and uh, Jerry. Um, I know Alan did some recording. Uh, who else? There was... Uh, well, anyway, so those were the main session guys. Um, and then there were some funk session players. I mean, everybody got and So, so I was, I was up against trying to get Andy Newmark. Okay. Another, another guy who was New York based and Andy actually played on the first balance record. Um, and, and it was just, you know, I remember I cold called Bob Kulik out of nowhere. I managed to find his number in a, I think the, the union phone book. And I called him out of nowhere and I wasn't even that aware of what he had done, but I knew that, you know, he was a contemporary guitar player in New York city. And I just told him we got to play together. And it wasn't for, and it wasn't until another couple of years I got a chance to do that. But uh, I, I went into, in and out of the city all the time. I lived in a place called Montclair, New Jersey, uh, born and raised there. And at the time, uh, even before I could drive, I was taking the bus in to, to just get a feel for Midtown um, walking around, taking uh, subways up and down. And I wanted to be a part of that town. So uh, it, it was just, it's just like anything, you know, you do one project and then uh, no, uh, you do one project and somebody enjoys the way you play. And then you get, you, you get, you know, mentioned again and, or you get a call when Andy Newmark can't do it or when the Marauders couldn't do it. So uh 
it was uh, it was a daunting experience uh, to try and get into just the music scene on any level, whether it was being a member of a band, which I wanted desperately to be, um, or uh, or the studio thing, which I really didn't expect to be able to do at all. And I did a, a, I did a little bit, not a ton, because those other uh, a call players uh, were pretty much the ones that got called all the time. So so talk to me because. You know, for the most part, uh, you you have been a successful sort of studio musician and a touring uh, drummer, uh, not so much a, a band member, you know, more, more. I mean, you have been a band member, but, you know, being a, a touring guy. Um, talk to me about, about that and how do you keep a career like that going? So, for example, how, how does Billy Joel know to pick up the phone and, and call Chuck? Oh, he did. But okay, so I'll just tell you the way it evolves, uh, and, and the way my whole career has evolved, is has been um, knowing somebody, uh, working with them, uh, and I always wanted to be a, a band guy. I mean, um, and not that that's had a lot of longevity for a lot of players, but you know, artistically, I always thought, God, if I could be in a band for a couple of years and do a couple of records that I really you know, was a part of where I shared in the royalties, where I, it wasn't a buyout, where I was able to really hone my ideas and my my vision. Um, I would have been really thrilled. But as it turned out, for the most part, I've been a, a journeyman. I've been somebody that gets a call after uh, the album's done and they need somebody to go on the road. Um, or with Billy, uh, I had been working. Uh, I met his guitar player. Uh, Tommy Burns, who was the who had been his uh, musical director director for 25 years, I met him through a mutual uh, bass player friend, and we started doing all sorts of crazy uh, sessions uh, sessions for very little money, but just to just to have fun and pay the bills and uh, and and you know uh, so Tommy was producing a ton of projects. I was involved with them. Uh, because Tommy was in Billy's band, he got a call from a guy uh, called Enrique Iglesias. Uh, he got his his management company called him, wanted uh, to, Tommy to to see if he could use Billy's band, and uh, they so we put a, he, Tommy put a band together, but Liberty didn't want to do the tour. Uh, Billy was off the road for a year. Uh, so Tommy had already known me and called me and said, you know, I got this thing. So it just, it's a snowball effect. If you can stay, uh, healthy, if you can stay, uh, you know, fun to be with and fun to hang out with, um, good things can happen. You also have to be tenacious as hell and, uh, and keep going and doing stuff for sometimes no money just because you get a chance to be seen by other players or you get a chance to work with somebody who is well-known and connected like Tommy Burns was. So I, uh, I worked with Tommy in the studio, played live with him. We also uh, were a part of this uh, a year tour that Enrique did. We did Enrique's very first uh, world tour. And, uh, and it was extraordinary. But in any case, after that, it was another year or two uh, or three before Tommy was asked by Billy to put a band together for moving out the Broadway show. And, yeah. uh, Tommy, Tommy called me and said, look, I, you know, I've never done this and I know you haven't, uh, but you want to, you want to be a part of a band so we can audition for the producers to see if we can get this show up and running. And I was like, are you kidding? 
Uh, at the time, I was living in the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and I always was leaving town to work every weekend, sometimes for weeks, sometimes for years at a time, like with the first Enrique tour. That was like an 11-month tour. Um, yeah. In any case, so I did move it out. And, and it actually was on Broadway for three and a half years. It was my one and only time on Broadway. And in the course of doing that, Billy got a chance to audition me numerous times or for three and a half years. And, uh, and then eventually asked me, he was parting ways with Liberty. And I managed to grab the brass ring off the carousel and, uh, and was asked to join his band before moving out was even finished. So uh, I was rehearsing with Billy and then um, some nights rehearsing during the afternoon and going in and uh, and then doing a show with Moving Out. So, um, you know what, I, was... I, I was going to get to Moving Out, but since we're here, let, let's go to it. Um, of course, on that cast, you had uh, John Scarapula, who, of course, played with Huey Lewis. You had Greg Smith, uh, you know, Greg Smith yeah. played with Alice Cooper. Yeah. Uh, uh, who else was on there? I'm, I'm trying to think. Uh, Scott well, Kreitzer, Scott Scott's Kreitzer, Scott who did stuff uh, with John yeah. Bon Jovi and, and David Lee Roth. But but let me ask you this, because when you're out there playing with Meatloaf and when you're out there playing with Balance and with Billy Joel, the, the, there is a there is a certain point where you're you're part of the show. You're it's got to be explosive. It's got to be ex- visually exciting. And when you're on Broadway you've got to be sort of in the shadows while you're providing the music for the people that are sort of singing and dancing up front. Um, Talk to me about the challenges and is there a difference in your drumming style? Do you have to be more subdued? Do you have to, is it, did you just play it differently? Is it exactly the same thing? And and I'm on the wrong track here. What, what's sort of the major difference there? Okay. So, um, you know, having never been on Broadway before, um, um, I really had to learn the, all these songs of Billy's and I had been a fan of his. I had been a fan of Liberty's. Um, uh, just, I always thought he was fun to watch and I knew he hit really hard. So for moving out, uh, I hit harder than ever. Um, and I also, the whole band was featured. Uh, and matter of fact, that was a, a precedent setting show because they built this huge uh, they called it the Travelator that was um, almost like a rocket gantry uh, with a with a, a stage, uh, a stage for the band to set up on. And we were a big band um, and it moved up. And as it could move up, this thing would move back and forth from the back of the uh, stage to the front. So it could give you uh, the impression of the band uh, coming down. Uh, like out of the sky or going back up into the sky uh, on and at any particular point, or we could hover over the dancers. We could, it, it was an amazing experience because it was playing two hours where we had to get used to the movements, um, how the uh, set designer and how Twyla saw the band, the band was always featured. So we were either above the, um, above the, the dancers or we were down right right in them uh sometimes and uh it was it, it was an absolutely jaw dropping show to be a part of and it was the probably the hardest i've ever worked in my life because i was at the rehearsals i was playing as hard as i could to emulate liberty i was playing as hard as i could because that was one of the things about 
Billy's music live that I really loved was the energy. I thought, you know, uh, him and Lib were incredibly exciting to watch. And I was like, well, if I'm playing Billy Joel music in New York, I've got to be at least, I got to hit as hard as, as Lib did. I've got to, I've got to be visual. And they were, I was given the freedom to do that. So that was an enormous responsibility um, because I knew at some point Billy would be coming and other members of his band might or might not come see it. And um, so that was a one-on thing. I mean, at that point, I don't think most bands had really ever been featured like we were uh, in moving out on Broadway. And uh, it, it, it was like the antithesis of the pit where yes, you might have to play quiet and yes, you, you, I mean, uh, I, I'm really bad at playing quietly because I've been playing live for so long um, that I just I just hit the drums a certain way when I play rock and roll, uh, maybe jazz, something straight ahead or something Latin. I'm not I'm not as concerned about my volume, but when I'm playing rock and roll, I'm going to hit as hard as I can because that's just kind of where I've gotten. Um, but I've always kind of done that. And uh, especially with the artists like Richie, like Meatloaf, uh, I was just wailing on those drums. So my my hands were always shredded and they never were so torn up as they were in the three and a half years of doing Moving Out. Yeah, Um, because that's constant. That's like five days a week or or seven days, eight eight days a week sometimes. I was doing eight shows a week (laughs) when we first started. Eight two-hour shows a week. Yeah. That's cruel. Now, Billy, Billy does two and a half hour shows, but we only do them once every eight days, 10 days. So uh, it's a big difference. But back then, I, I had never worked that hard, Mitch. And it was uh, it was mind boggling. <laughs> and also, you know, too, I was <clears throat> I was tasked with really having to keep the tempos every night as close to exact as possible and without a click, uh, because uh uh, and a, well, because the, the you can't improvise on Broadway. It has to be the show and it has to be timed yeah. perfectly. It's, it yeah. is. And yes. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, I, I just spoke to Jim Valance, who, uh, who writes with Brian Adams. They have a play on Broadway sure, right now. Him, I met him about a year and a half ago. Sweet guy. Great guy. And and they're on Broadway right now with, with Pretty Woman. And I said, hey, it's your first time you wrote that. Do you ever want to do it again? He said, never. <laughs> he goes, it's yeah. horrible because you, 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 you think you have it down and then an actor changes or a part changes. Then you have to rewrite the whole song. And it, it really is uh, taxing on the writers, yeah. the actors, the players. People don't seem to understand that. You go there and you see Lion King and you see Aladdin. You're like, oh, this is great. Ha, ha, ha. But it's it's almost torturous for for the people doing it well, because you have to be yeah, so I mean, precise. Yep, it has to be precise uh, from a musical standpoint because we were playing. Our show had very had no dialogue actually, um, so it was all mimed and all danced. So the dancing sequences were absolutely jaw dropping. Um, Twyla Tharp outdid herself for that, uh, and uh, and because of that the songs and the whole, the whole flow, it had to be the same every night. So the dancers could, wouldn't get hurt. Tempos had to be exactly the same. Um, the show for, it was just choreographed down to a, down to a millisecond. And the work that gets put in to do that is, is just mind boggling and numbing. And most people would never know uh, the amount of work that gets put into a, a show of that magnitude 
I didn't know. <laughs> I mean, I've rehearsed for, for, I've rehearsed for tours before, but you know, uh, we were, we were in uh, Chicago for, I think three months. And some of those, many of those days as the show progressed and as we started getting a flow, um, uh, we would rehearse, oh, from 11 to one break for food from two to six or seven. Uh, and and that's playing for me all, all that time and playing as hard as I can. Uh, and uh, and literally there was one day off a week uh, at rehearsals. It was it was a Monday and I spent every there were great parties, apparently, with the cast and band. And I never made it to one of them because uh, I was just shot, shattered every Monday. Uh, my hands were ripped to shreds. Uh, physically, I had never worked that hard in my life. Um, doing, we were doing, we just rehearsed hours and hours and hours every day. And, uh, I realized and in the course of that, um, that the sound people are setting levels on the drums. Uh, uh, so I, what I'm, what we're busy doing is not just creating the flow of the show or the actual structure of the songs, but we're slowly trying to get the way the drum set that I chose to, uh, bring to that show is going to be mic'd, how it's going to sound out front, what are the levels, what they're going to need. They eventually put a plexiglass uh, wall in front of me to make me more manageable volume-wise. Um, but other than that, I was completely visible, especially most of the show, uh, to in the by the balcony. Uh, so I, I was up there, the whole band was up there, even with the balcony, and we were, we were we were as much a part of the dancers show as, uh, as you could imagine, we were lit. We were, uh, we weren't necessarily choreographed, but we were up there to play and perform as well. So let it me, was really a challenge. Let, let me, let me, let me get off Broadway for a second here. Sure. There's so many, so much ground to cover. So when you're doing stuff <laughs> for hollow notes and rainbow and the first Bon Jovi album and Broadway and balance and meatloaf and, and Billy is, is Chuck just, drummer chuck and it's one size fits all or do you specifically adapt the playing style for the different bands and the different guys you know were you playing the same with meatloaf as you were playing with billy joel and and is it the same sort of licks that you or can we call it a lick a rift or whatever that, that you did on the bon yeah. jovi album i mean like, like is it one well, yeah, size fits all good... no it's no. not i think that's a great question and uh um, because I haven't done any interviews and, and this is more of like a drum magazine uh, question. Um, and, and I'll share something. Um, I think I'm, I'm going on 14 years with Billy and I'm, I'm, I'm blessed that this has been the longest job I've ever had and, and is truly the best band I've ever been in. Um, but on top of that, I only feel like I have, uh, found a way to be me um, and pay total homage to what Lib created because he played on most of the tracks we play live. Uh, I've only actually achieved that in the last, in my, from, from my mind, the last two years. (laughs) And so that's, hopefully that's part of the answer because I have been, uh, I've been struggling with what to bring into Billy what what works what doesn't work how can i how can i update him in that 
you know, a lot of those tracks and a lot of those tracks, there's nothing broken to this very moment. You could listen to Allentown and it's a, it's a great track. You could listen to that's not her style. You can listen to, uh, uh, some of the albums uh, sound better than others. I, I think Stormfront sounds really great. Uh, but so many of Lib's performances, there's nothing broken with them. So un- unlike when I first joined Billy, I tried to throw in everything in the kitchen sink and I would listen to it back. And I would also get feedback from their sound man, especially who was like, don't do that. Don't play that fast stuff. Don't do, he called it, don't throw that dream theater stuff in. Uh, and I, and that's, I, that's funny, you know, and I kept pushing the envelope because I was, uh, I'm, I'm okay with double bass. And I, and some of the things I do, they're really a part of my, my style. And, uh, and, and they're simple though. So I, I've only come up with how to play all the songs that I have to play with Billy, uh, in what I consider to be a complete concept. Uh, that involves my own personality and involve, has involved years of listening to live stuff and going, that was a bad idea. That works. Everybody likes that. The sound man hated that. Uh, that's too busy. You can't tell what I'm doing. You know, um, we're playing nothing but big places. And, uh, and, and my sound man has told me, please play meat and potatoes. And uh, I think for the most part, I now do. And I got to say that that was never a part of the way I played. Uh, It's made me a better player overall. um, And it has made an enormous challenge for me to stay with. And we were just talking about rehearsing a show um, and having to to really stay within those parameters. Well, for the most part, um, I don't change up a lot of stuff when I play with Billy. Um, At this point, after 13 going on 14 years with him, um, the licks I do, the spots where I play, um, they all work for me. They work for the people I'm playing with. They seem to work with Billy. Uh, when I used to throw, I used to change up my fills cause I was still trying to feel how the band felt. And I started to realize that whenever Billy looked up at me after a fill, it was a bad thing. It wasn't like, Oh, that was cool. It was like, where's one. Um, so that was that was daunting. And I, I have yeah. to say that I think if you if you were to ask the same question to someone like uh, Abe Boreal, who uh, who I, I, I was I'm such a fan of this guy because I, I, I you know, he's been with McCartney about 16, 17 years now, I think. Um, but if you listen to the first couple of years he was with them. He, he is really, really pushing the rhythmic uh, and polyrhythmic envelope. And I think since then, he's been in with Paul long enough that you hear him play shows now. It's perfect. It's perfect. It's like the records, but it's like the records on steroids because that's how good he's gotten. Um, and I think that's, I think he's gotten, gone through the same uh, editing process of looking at, you know, what, what, what did Ringo do on some, or what did Denny Sewell do with wings or who, or, or Paul, Paul played on some of those songs that he does live. And so, you know, I, I, you come in, you want to show everybody what you could bring to the party, but for the most part, it doesn't matter because the people that come to see Billy, they're already familiar with the classic songs, the classic drum parts. And, uh, they, 
you know, I, I throw in, I think what I'm there for now more than anything is consistency. And, uh, and, and we can put on a Billy show anywhere, any place without any real re rehearsal. Uh, cause it's an amazing group of people, a very magic group of people, some of whom are my, my oldest friends, um, as well. But, um, we've all edited our parts. So we all feel like this is a Billy show. And it, if it, if we can do our job song for song for two and a half hours, it's a win because Billy's going to do it. He's always, he always brings a thousand percent and, and does an amazing performance in my, my perspective. Uh, but it's taken me, uh, it's taken me 14 years to, to kind of edit, uh, my personality into the little places where people will go, okay, that works. Um, and then edit, edit most of it out to realize that I'm there on, for a bigger, uh, cause. Bigger and purpose, I, yeah. yeah, bigger purpose. Now I, I have to say that all these other, a lot of these other bands I was with, no one ever talked to me about that. And I never went through that when I recorded with Richie and I got the chance to take that album, uh, been out of shape live. Uh, as well as play a lot of his more, uh, you know, the other classic stuck stuff that Rainbow had done. Um, I just did my thing, and I never really uh, overly thought it. But then I was only in that band two years, so uh, if we had kept playing, uh, I would have been able to uh, develop what I was doing even further. Same with, I mean, with Meatloaf. Up until that point, I, I was with Meat, I think, six and a half years, and that was the longest running job I had had up until that point. Um, so, um, well, you got to, you also got to be on final vinyl with rainbow and you had a chance to, to, to tackle some of those songs, but, but let me ask you this because with Liberty and, and the fan base, you know, I don't want to say it's perfection, but, but it, it's sort of hard to top Liberty and it, it's, it's, it's almost presumptuous to come in and say, I'm going to do better. So you, you do have to have your personality, you do, but you also got to give the fans what they like, and and I mean, Liberty, Liberty played played great. I mean, right? You, yeah, you yeah. No, I, I I love I love what he brought to Billy. You know, the re, the reasons why he's not there are uh, there's are myriad, and much of it, in my opinion, doesn't really have to do with yeah. uh, how how he played the original hits and songs. Uh, you know, I saw them a couple of times before I ever joined the band and I, I was not happy with the way he was playing at that point uh, as a drummer uh, because the band and Billy were amazing. So from my perspective, I think uh, he had hit uh, a place where I have been with other bands as well. And it was one of uh, kind of boredom and one of like, well, since I've been in this band for so long, I'm just going to start changing stuff up because... I can because it's, um, it's, you know, I'm the drummer. And I think that that's a, a dangerous uh, place to get to and whether it's boredom or frustration or whether it's uh, feelings of inadequacy or whatever, um, or maybe just thinking, well, we're all going to keep evolving and I'm going to keep changing my drum part as time goes on. And it's, and maybe what Billy really wants is just the consistency of, could you play the song the way you recorded it? Yeah. So uh, let, I don't know if they ever, you know, ever talked about stuff like that. I don't know. But let, I know that I, that's one of the first things I talked with Billy about when I started working with. with let, 
let me so, uh, let me let me move away from Billy Joel just for for a sure. second because you have worked with both Culex, uh Bob and Bruce uh, on um, Everybody's Crazy, on Skull, uh, the, the No Bones About It, and and all these other right. Albums. Um, at any time in that sort of space or atmosphere or, or whatever entourage. Did did Bob or Bruce ever suggest you to to go play with the band Kiss? Because I know they've changed drummers and they they had. Did they ever say, "Hey, we've got a guy"? Or were you never considered? Uh... I, I don't think I was considered. I uh, uh, the closest I ever got to that band was I actually uh, I rented them the same drums that I used on the balance record. Gene heard that record and was like, they were doing creatures of the night. And, uh, I was, and I offered to, uh, bring my kid in, uh, with the help of one of their roadies and, uh, set it up and tune it up as if, uh, as if I was going to record. And then, uh, Eric played on it. So you, you, you've just sparked the geek, the kiss geek in me. So the drums that, Eric Carr is playing on the Creatures of the Night album with Michael James Jackson producing that incredible sound that he got out of them. Uh, the, that's your kit. Well, for at least one song. Ooh. Uh, that I think, yeah. And I don't, I'm not even going to remember the song, but uh, it was a song that, uh, and I think it was late in the production, but Gene was like, I want the, I want the sound that you guys got on the Balance album. And so... Uh, I guess Gene called me and was like, Hey, you know, uh, you know, can we borrow, can we use your drums? And I was like, well, it's not just that, but it's the way I tuned them for the balance sessions. And I was like, how about we do this? How about, you know, uh, I bring them in. I had a van at the time. I'll bring them in. You got, you have some people to help me get them into the power station and I'll tune them up for you. And, um, you can, uh, you know, Eric can play them. And so so I was a roadie I was a roadie for a day and it was really fun. Oh, and I really liked, I really uh, gained a, a massive amount of respect for uh, Eric, who I didn't know and hadn't really seen play live. And uh, he was a monster. He was just super powerful and, and very energetic and a really sweet guy. So yeah, an absolute... that's as close as I got. So, so let me ask you then quickly about um, the, 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 the meatloaf band, because here you are with Bob Kulik You've got Alan mm-hmm. Merrill, who, of course, was in the Arrows, who recorded and wrote I Love Rock and Roll years before Joan Jett ever got her hands. In fact, 10 years before Joan Jett ever got her hands on it. Yeah, um, that's right. It, yeah. I mean, that that it's always amazing to me when people go, I love that song by Joan Jett. I love rock and roll. And you go, it's a cover. And they go, no, it's not. Go, yeah, it came out in the early 70s. But thanks for playing along. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and well, whenever I have a chance. Yeah. Much. Yeah, I know yeah. too much, but when I when I, I, I you know when I speak to Alan uh, Merrill and stuff, I, I like to to have that conversation because you know it's 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 sort of the the bread and butter that paid for a lot of his things, and yet a lot of people just go, oh yeah, Joan, that's a great Joan Jett song. It's like okay, anyway, yeah, they have um, no idea. They have no idea. He was the writer. Yeah, right. But but talk to me. Well, so you so you do live in Wembley. You, you you're here. I mean, you're you're working with some of the greatest vocalists in in, in the entertainment industry. I mean, Billy Joel. I'm not gonna, yeah. you're not yeah. gonna deny that. I mean, just you know, no, you, you, you look know, at the guys that sang yeah. with Rainbow. Not gonna deny and and Meatloaf. Uh, what was that like? And what was it like to to be 
Um, mm. How does that connection go? Because you're in balance with Bob, Kulik, and stuff. Is it just that you two guys are buddies and you move over to, to Meatloaf? Or are, does, does Meatloaf hire you and you say, hey, I know a guitarist? Or do they hire Bob and say, hey, I know a drummer? How does sort of that sort of lateral movement well, happen? Okay, so yes, in a way, that is how that happened. Um, and, uh, and so I could take real quickly back to uh, Jolyn Turner and I were uh, in a band. I helped. See, now that's uh, a voice a, right original, there. I helped an original band he had called Fandango get their first record deal on RCA. Um, and then I left to go on tour with a, a like a kind of jazz rock band. But uh, once Joe had run his course with Fandango, he auditioned for Richie for Rainbow, got the gig, and I was out of touch with him for a bunch of years. And then, uh, and then he called me out of the blue saying, listen, you know, this, I got your number from so-and-so this, uh, our drummer, you know, is leaving, uh, Bobby at the time. And we're, and we're going to audition for new people. So that was, it was, it was just knowing Joey. That's how that happened. Now, after being in balance and after doing a couple of other different sessions with Bob Kulik, um, when Meatloaf was getting ready to put a tour together for that Blind Before I Stop album, uh, um, he had a band together. They did a couple of uh, low-key and uh, off-the-radar gigs that did not go well. And the first person that was fired from that band was the lead guitarist. Bobby was then uh, called by me and, uh, and asked to join the band for the next tour. And, uh, and Bobby, I guess, said, well, who's playing drums? And, uh, and they were like, well, we don't have that either. He was like, let me make a call. So it was just exactly that. And literally uh, a couple of days later, I mean, you know, literally hours later, I get a call from Bobby saying, hey, you want to audition for Meatloaf? And I was like, I thought, you know, it, like working with him was, was difficult for you. And he was like, it is, but it's a great gig. And I know the material and I'll learn the new album. So what? So, you know, I, I had their, their management send me the stuff. I learned the material. We did a uh, one, one or two day uh, kind of audition, me and Bobby. Uh, and, and he was tapped to be the uh, MD and to put the rest of the band together uh, and to rehearse it, I should say, because uh, the rest of the band pretty much stayed the same. Um, we had a second guitar player who remained nameless, uh, who... I guess before the tour really happened, um, Bobby thought we've got to get somebody stronger. Uh, and it was interesting because at the same time, we were still uh, looking to continue working with Skull, which was a, a band I really wanted to have happen uh, with Bobby on lead guitar and a, a band built around his look, uh, kind of like a cheap trick vibe built around uh, a bald guy. Uh, so we didn't have a lead singer though. So Bobby and I were shopping at the time we start, here we are, we're rehearsing with meat and he's like, we need another guitar player. And, and he's like, and skull needs a lead singer. So let's call this guy, Alan Merrill up, uh, and, uh, and see if he wants to, to be a part of meatloaf's band. And we can find out if he might be the guy we want to have sing uh, lead for skull. Well, that tour, I mean, the meatloaf gig lasted a good long time. Um, and by the time Bobby left meatloaf, my involvement with Skull had ended as well. And, uh, and then Alan was, 
Alan and Bob left the band and then we eventually put a band together with another guitar player who could play both parts, wow. um, Pat Thrall. Now, we, um, so oh, Pat Thrall, yeah. uh, using Thrall. That's 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 a great. Yeah. Time. Let me let me ask you this because oh we're 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 closing in on forty five minutes right now. So I'll, right. I'm gonna we'll wrap it up for you know short shortly and then we'll do a part two maybe. But uh, let me ask you two general questions. There is a mm-hmm. lot of talk on the internet these days about bands uh, using pre recorded tapes and using all kinds of bells and whistles and triggered backing vocals and blah 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 blah. And of course, yeah. yes, uh, some of the bands are out there saying, yes, we have enhancements, you know, sort of quote unquote, we have enhancements because you can't bring out a cello player and a piano player and it, it's too cost prohibitive. Um, sure. What's your experience from, from meatloaf to balance to skull to rainbow to the, have you ever been in a position where you have had to play the tape and, and is Billy Joel, because that's a big performance. That's a big show. Is he live or is he Memorex? We're a hundred percent live. We have one song that has a percussion loop in it, in, uh, in, in river of dreams. Uh, and it's the same percussion loop that I played to, um, uh, in moving out. Other than that, Billy's a hundred percent live. Rainbow was a hundred percent live. Meatloaf was a hundred percent live. Uh, all my favorite rock and roll bands and all, many of them that I've been with were all live. And, and honestly, um, you know, different musics, um, I think dictate what you need. Uh, and of course, different band leaders or different groups have an idea of, um, the way they want to be perceived musically as well as live. Um, fortunately, the Billy Band has got some of the best singers who blend better than almost anybody else I've ever been in. But the Meatloaf Band had people that could all sing their asses off. Uh, uh, Joey, uh, you know, Joey was the only singer in Rainbow for a while live. We had uh, two girls that would sing backgrounds. Uh, to kind of flesh out some of the stuff, the stacked vocals he did, but we never did any anything pre-recorded. So to me, that's always that's always the best. <laughs> you know, uh, it's certainly the easiest uh, to to just go out there and play your band, play your song. You know? So so I'll ask you, uh, I'll ask you these follow-ups. Uh, are are enhancements cheating? And if you can't play it live without the enhancement, sh- should you maybe either drop the song from the set list or simply offer a different version of it? Because that's, to me, sometimes what's cool about a live show is that, okay, you yeah. have the album version, but then you get sort of the the stripped down raw in your face or the faster version or the more whatever, yeah. the more metal version or the more whatever. And I'm fine with that. Well, that- yeah, well, and me too, and that's the mentality that I grew up with. But I think uh, I think younger players and younger members of bands, uh, younger band leaders, younger artists, um, they, uh, I think, there's a whole another concept uh, based around performances, um, and and there's got to be a variety of reasons for it. Uh, let's just say, you know, the Billy Show is. Uh, it's a different show every night. It's a different set list. A lot of different songs get played every night. And uh, it's a challenge for our lighting guy. And, and because we don't have dancers, um, the, uh, the tempos, I try and keep the tempos as close to the same as the last show we did. 
Uh, and, you know, and I think we're really in the ballpark for that. And I think it helps the performance. But if you have someone like Justin Bieber or Beyonce, and she's putting on a show that um, is involving dancers, uh, we, we could have, for instance, with moving out, we maybe even should have uh, been uh, playing to click, which I think now all the shows on Broadway are. Uh, but it's also, it has to do with Billy's music. Like Billy's music was, well, it, it, it's earthy. It's raw rock and roll when he did it live, when he still does it live. And so that's what we embodied for Broadway. And um, it, it's really down to the artist and what the music's really like, like the classic rock bands. Why is there a need for anything pre-recorded if everybody can still sing? If they can't, then maybe you're going to need some help. And then the drummer's going to have to play to a click. But um, a good a good rock and roll band, I don't understand why you would need anything pre-recorded. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to fully agree with that. I, I really don't think, you know, if, listen, as we all get older, you know, uh, there's a reason why Joe Namath is not the quarterback for the Jets anymore, right? Because at some point you, you, you just can't. But But there are other things to do other than, uh, cheating or enhancements. You you can right. bring in some backing vocals and you can just be very upfront on it and say, Hey, look, we've got a keyboard vocalist that we're adding to the stage. Yes, we're, we were, we were four for our heyday, but now we're five because the presentation requires an extra guy. Sure. And, and you know what? Fans are forgiving of that. They, they understand that nobody's going to go to, uh, and I'm not going to name bands because I don't want to, but they're not going to go to a show and say, oh my God, they've got a keyboard player helping out on vocals. How terrible. I want my money back. <laughs> I know. Yeah, you know, right. and, but anyway, listen. Well, especially if they're good, if it's a good show and if it's a, and if it's a, um, a valid and a good performance of, of what they do. Absolutely. Uh, but I think it's really a, a band by band decision because some groups are just more technically, their sound is more technically uh, involved than uh, some pop songs, especially some pop artists using loops and using uh, pre-recorded rhythm stuff that ends up becoming a part of what they do. I can see those things having to be incorporated and letting the live drummer work around it. Um, my, my favorite thing has been to do the least amount of that ever possible so that you can just get into the music and have fun. Yeah. But again, it's really, it's really on the artist and music uh, you know, on, on an artist by artist basis from my perspective, because, uh, you know, uh, playing to a click is a pain in the ass. I, I'm, you know, I don't care who you are. You can be really good at it. I try and be good at it, but, uh, just to have to stay in with something that's in my, my brain, uh, is a whole lot less fun than to just have fun and do the song yeah. and, uh, and, and have it be hundred percent right there right now. Um, it's not a bad tool. And as a matter of fact, there might be some bands who are still using their original drummer who really might need a click because he's gotten a little sloppier or a little, um, you know, a little older, or maybe a little rickety. Uh, maybe he's not hitting as hard. Maybe he's not practicing like he used to, whatever. So I, I, can, I can cut bands slack for that. But uh, I, I've always thought a good rock and roll band, good rock and roll doesn't necessarily need a click, uh, or, uh, all those enhancements. If there's good vocalists in the band to begin with, yeah, uh, the Billy band yeah, and the meatloaf band had amazing vocalists. Uh, so we sounded like records at times 
And I, I was really proud of being a part of that because it was nothing pre-recorded. Yeah, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll say, I think a good rock band can also improvise and, and change things around to fit the moment. Yeah. And, and, and I'll, I'll end on this because we're at 50 minutes and, and there are so many things we didn't cover, even the part of our discussion before we got on air about uh, right, how right. clubs are disappearing and stuff. But I'll keep that for another time. Uh, sure. But I will finish with this because this is probably the most important thing you've ever done. <laughs> And I'm not being facetious, but you got to work with the great, great, great Steve Brown on an album called Tokyo Motor oh, Fist. Man. Now, of yeah. course, Tokyo Motor Fist was a great melodic rock record. And for folks who haven't heard, it came out in 2017, includes uh, Danger Danger vocalist Ted Poley. But uh, mm-hmm. Steve Brown, uh, guitarist to the stars, having played now with Dennis D. Young. Uh, who else? Yeah, he, exactly. uh, um, who else has he played? Oh, he's played with oh, Def Leppard. He was out with De- <laughs> Def Leppard for the last couple of years, uh, subbing for not only Phil but also for uh, uh, Adrian, uh, Vivian, Vivian, rather. Yeah, and and that's got to be challenging uh, because it's a two guitar attack, and he had to learn all the parts of the one guy, and then he had to go learn yeah. all the parts of the other guy. So all that's the, that, the other guy. Yeah, that's like that's there's that's, nobody. There's that, no. I've never worked with anybody who takes what they do more serious who has as much fun as he does and who's as talented as he is. So the, the Tokyo Motor Fist album was a blast. Uh, we were lucky enough to do a couple of shows uh, to follow that first record up. And uh, I'm waiting to hear if we have a show uh, here in North Jersey again uh, at the same venue that we played towards the end of this past year. Uh, it was a great turnout, great club. Um, and the band, I mean, I, it's just so much damn fun. Oh my God. Uh, me, Greg Smith, who, Greg and I have played, we've been in, in we rainbow together. We played at rainbow. We've, uh, yeah, it's just been incredible. And I love him to death and love working with him. Um, I think as the summer progresses, it's going to be hard to get together with him because he'll be out with, uh, Ted Nugent on his 10th year of, uh, of gigging with uncle Ted. Uh, but, um, it's an amazing band, and we haven't been able to really scratch the surface of who we could be live. So, uh, but because we have played live, the next album is going to be even better. And I, I'm very, very proud uh, and was blown away by that album. Uh, you know, Steve, Steve asked me to be a part of it and sent me the record, and I called him back literally within an hour and was like, so what am I doing on it? His, his demo of that record was so unbelievably good. That's how um, that's how deep this guy is. He had sung all the backgrounds. He sang all the leads. He uh, sequenced and put put together all the drums, played all the bass, played all the guitars on it. And uh, and I was like, this is an amazing record. Why are you calling me? It's done. Uh, as it turns out, I was able to throw a couple of things in. There were you know my own uh, style or my own thoughts. But uh, there was many times when I was in the studio with him because it was just he and I playing to, uh, to rough tracks initially. Uh, it was just, uh, I'm going to do that drum fill you did on your demo. And he was like, why? I was like, cause I can't think of anything better. It's good. Uh, but that's how good Stevie is. He, he images everything, uh, when he's done gigs as he is now doing with Dennis C. Young. I know he's spending all day, every day, uh, working on his sound, on, on the parts, on his vocals, He's so damn good. Oh, my God. Uh, if we could ever get TMF off the ground so we could actually work a good chunk of every year, I would be one of the happiest campers on the planet. 
Well, so. Tokyo Motor Fist, uh, you know, definitely needs to do the Northeast uh, a little bit more and, and, you know, get on the cruise circuit because a lot of those bands... Anyway, it, I bought the album. I mean, I literally bought it. It wasn't given to me. I, did, I, I bought it from Japan, oh, actually. Man. I bought it from Japan oh, because sure. it, had a, it had a bonus track and it's a great thing. And uh, I will I will ask Steve to co-host on this episode when, when we get it up. And uh, absolute, absolute pleasure. He- and... Uh, one of the greatest tragedies, by the way, I've never seen Billy Joel live, by the way. Can you believe that? Oh, Mitch. <laughs> I know. You know, it's I, a tragedy. I have to tell you, it's, it is a tragedy because I think he's better now than he ever was. And the band is better now than it ever was. I mean, it really is. Uh, it's at a peak spot, which is, I guess, why we're still working as much as we are and doing these immense shows, just mega shows. We're actually going back uh, as much. I mean, I love, I love, you know, Billy's his own creature. I have very little to do with creating that as opposed to Tokyo Motor Fist, which was, I'm a part of, but, but Billy's doing what that band and almost every other band could ever only hope to do. We're going actually back to Wembley. And the last time we were there two years ago, it was sold out. And almost every show we do with Billy is sold out. All the garden shows are sold out. Uh, all the big stadiums have been sold out for the last five, six years. So it is, it is on a scale that, uh, you'd really like it because it's, Oh, it's, I, I know I would. Fast. I just, I just know that I, I believe they came, I think they came through Montreal. Was it in two seventeen or two eighteen? I think you came through here and it's just, you can't get oh, a ticket. That, you can't get a ticket. Yeah, it's just, it, it sells out before they even well, go on you sale. know me now and not only that but if you make it down to new, new york we can work this out mitch <laughs> oh i will i will i will make it i will make it to new york and in fact i will come with steve to to see that but uh chuck there an you absolute go. absolute pleasure and <laughs> for many many years you, i did not know that i was enjoying your drumming on the first bon jovi record i did not know i was enjoying Yui mcdonald's bass playing on well pretty much yeah. every bon jovi record <laughs> but 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 now that we know, and now that we know that Al Denova didn't just play on Runaway, he played on almost the entire thing too. It's just nice right. to know because listen, I have actually gone down a rabbit hole of Bon Jovi the last couple. I have a, a 300 song playlist in my phone, and those oh, early wow. tracks, the, the the roulettes, the shot through the heart, the Runaways, the she don't know me, all of them. And I know you only played on half of them, but. But there's just a magic to that innocence and that you can hear a passion in the songs of, I got a chance to make this record and it's the rest of my life. So I'm going to give it everything I've got. And you and and Aldo and you and John and you you concocted a magic recipe and it it really turned out nice. And of course, everything else, the the, the rainbow and the the balance and and then the the, the song on Private Eyes and... uh, Thank you for thank you for well, being part you know, of it. Well, thank you, man. I've been very, very blessed uh, so far in my career, and uh, you know, I, I, the only the only downside is I wish I was actually involved in so many of those projects to the point where I, I could have rehearsed. They were all so many of these things were uh, sessions where you just show up and you do your best. And then if I listen to it a week later or even a day later, I'm like, oh, I should have played this. I could have done that. This would have been better. But, you know, it, it's, the, it's the moment. And I think that moment is when, the, when that thing you're talking about, that concocting something magic, actually comes through. Because uh, you can beat something to death or you can find something great, you know, in a minute. 
and uh, and I think that's uh, that's a challenge in itself. And if I've been uh, if I've been lucky enough to do that a couple of times with uh, any of the different artists I've worked with, then uh, I'm doing pretty good. Yep. So no, you're doing uh, great. I really appreciate having having work having uh, talked with you. And uh, let's try and uh, organize part two whenever it's uh, convenient. Yeah. And, a, lot, uh, a lot of more stories uh, to tell, and uh, let's let's get a Tokyo Motor Fist part two. I'm going to text Steve right now and say, "Hey, uh, you lazy I would bones, love get that. to work." <laughs> but, yeah, we we know Steve's not lazy, that. but uh, there you oh, go. I Thank will. you, sir. Merci beaucoup, as you we say so up well. in Montreal. Uh, D'accord. Oh, well, my my pleasure, my friend. Thank you so much, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Absolutely. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.